0: Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. I introduced something on Wednesday night, and I intended to come back and, and complete that on another Wednesday night. It was in my intention it was my intention to do it on Wednesday night. The Lord said, do this tonight. And, uh, and so on Wednesday night, the last part of the service, uh, I, I introduced something just real briefly. Just kind of got the ball rolling a little bit. I'm not going to go into all of the detail because I went into the Greek word uh, for the word church. And I'm not going to go into, into the detail that I went to on Wednesday night. But in uh, Matthew 16, verse number 18... Jesus said, and I say unto you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said, I will build my church. I, I did say this last night or, or Wednesday night that when I was young in ministry, I read a book by a very well-known Bible, esteemed Bible, Bible teacher and, and I still esteem him highly, does a lot of, has a lot of good material. And he said that, because this is the word in the Greek, it's the word ekklesia. That's the word that's translated church, ekklesia. It's spelled E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. And uh, some people pronounce it ecclesia, but they're wrong. It's ekklesia. And uh, this is the first time it's found in the English Bible. It's the first time it's found in the New Testament. It's the first time the Greek word is found and the Greek word wasn't found at all in the Old Testament because it was written in, in Hebrew. So this is the first time ecclesia, ecclesia appears in the Bible. Well, this Bible teacher, he said that, that Jesus coined a new word for the church. He took a word that no one had ever heard and, and, and created a new word. And, I, and when, I, when I heard that, I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, we're special. I mean, God, God Jesus took and, and created a new... And, and I taught that for a number of years. Until I found out that this Bible teacher was completely wrong. (laughs) And that made me wrong. This is the first time "ecclesia" appears in the Bible. But that could be said of any number of words. They appear the first time because that's the first time you talk about it. or, or, Or have a need to use that word. I pointed out that the word "ecclesia" had two meanings to the disciples. When the disciples heard this word, they knew the word. They were familiar with the word because the word had been, had been in use at least 200 years before Christ. In the Greek speaking world, the word was used at least 200. And the reason we know that is because the Septuagint is the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew. It's the, it's the, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. So the Bible that Jesus read out of he read out of the Septuagint, just like we read out of the King James or the NIV or whatever you read. And that's these are uh, English translations from the Greek and Hebrew. Well, they didn't have a New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. And instead of reading it in Hebrew, they read it in Greek. It was called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was translated 200 years before Christ. So... The, the the word among the Greek and the Greco-Roman world to the non-religious person to the secularist of Jesus' day to the Roman or to the to the Greeks the word ecclesia did not have a religious meaning at all it meant it had two meanings two one meaning but but, but there's a there's a, a a shade of meaning that's very important the word ecclesia meant an assembly. But it didn't just mean and, and it and it always referred to an, an actual physical gathering of people, an assembling of people. It didn't have some kind of, of uh of uh you know, like I said, esoteric kind of you know meaning. It, it it had a nuts and bolts meaning of an assembly of people, but it had this distinction, it meant a called assembly, a duly convened assembly, and it was almost always used, or it was used particularly, I should say, of civic gatherings. Whenever the, uh, the ruling class or the people, any kind of civic uh, business was, was uh, transpired or was, was taken up, they would have a duly called, a duly convened assembly. People were summoned to come. And uh, that's what the word meant among Greek and Romans. Romans. Now when the Septuagint translation came out like I said 200 years before Christ they used the Greek word ekklesia which meant an assembly and a summon a summoning of people together a duly convened assembly they used the word ekklesia which is all through the New Testament we translate it church but the Septuagint used that Greek word to translate a Hebrew word Kahal, And Kahal was always used of the congregation of Israel. When the children of Israel would come together in their holy uh, feast or their gatherings, anytime the people of Israel, and in in you, if you run your references in the Old Testament and over and over and over, it talks about the congregation of, of Israel, the congregation of my people. That was the Hebrew word Kahal, And that Hebrew word meant just exactly the same thing that the Greek ecclesia meant. And that's why they used in the in the in the Septuagint, that's why they used ecclesia to translate that call hall, because call hall also meant an, an assembling of God's people. And it specifically meant God calling his people together. So that's that's the the history. The Romans, the secular world understood the Greek word to mean just a, an official assembly. Religious Jews, people who read the Old Testament from, from the uh, Septuagint in Jesus' day, they recognized the word uh, uh, ekklesia to mean God summoning his people, calling his people out of their homes, out of their ordinary uh, pursuits of life, their their ordinary work, their ordinary activities, calling them together to assemble in his presence. And when they did that, his presence was always there. I mean, he showed up, he filled that, that assembly with his glory. So that was, that was what the disciples heard when Jesus said, I will build my church. Now it probably struck them very uh, curiously. Jesus is going to build his church because they understood the word ecclesia to mean the assembly of God's people. But now Jesus said on this rock, I'm going to build my assembly. So that was a new concept to them, but the word wasn't new and they understood what it meant. The word "ecclesia," like I said, is used all through the New Testament and it's translated church almost every time. Uh, it is translated assembly. There's in the older King James and it talks in one place and I forget where it was. You could maybe remember for me, but it talked about the ascent, the, the uh uh, the church in the wilderness. Do you remember that scripture in the New Testament? It talks It talked about the church in the wilderness. It was talking about Israel. It, it's, you, you, can, you can run your references, but the newer uh, King James says the assembly in the wilderness because the King James translators use the word church, but we understand the church to refer to the body of Christ. And that's the way it's used, you know, almost... Uh, entirely in the New Testament. So it wasn't good to refer, to translate that word Ecclesia church in that, in that setting. So the new King James corrected that and talked about the assembly of Israel, not the assembly of Israel in the wilderness, not the church. Uh, we pointed out that, and I learned this a long time ago, first time I ever heard it was from uh, uh, Lois Toucher. Years ago, Lois Toucher was teaching in our church uh, when they were here ministering and she pointed out that the word "ecclesia" appears you know 110 times and five times it's referring to uh, a natural assembly uh like in Ephesus in the book of Acts when when uh Paul and Silas were in Ephesus and they were in the and there was this big uproar because they were preaching and the and the uh uh uh, uh people who were profiting from the sale of the uh, uh, artifacts that had to do with the worship of Diana. You know, Ephesus was the, the, the temple of Diana was in Ephesus and, and they all got together and said, if this man, if we let him continue, you know, he's gonna take away our trade because everybody's turning to God and they're not gonna come worship Diana anymore. And they stirred the, the, the people up and there was this big assembly that came together. And so I think four times in the 19th chapter of Acts, that word ecclesia is translated assembly and it refers to the civic assembly. But of the other, uh, you know, 90 plus times that it's used in the Bible or 101 time or whatever it is, uh, it refers to the church. Lois Toucher pointed out that uh, four times to one, with a, a four to one ratio, four times to one, the reference is to the local church not the universal church. Now, when Jesus said here, for instance, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, he's talking about the universal church. But most of the times, like I said, four to one, the references in the New Testament of the church, the New Testament church is a reference to the local church. So that tells us that the emphasis is on the local church. The emphasis, God, when, when we think about the church, God had in mind his actually His actual called assembly. Every time the local church meets, it is an assembly that he calls. Even though churches meet on different days and different schedules, he gives us the freedom to, to work that into our schedule. But the reason we meet together is because he calls us together. And it is, a, it is a calling to leave our natural pursuits and, and our natural life and come apart and come into his presence to worship him and to receive from him. That's what the ecclesia is. Now, because people are, are so often natural in their thinking, Instead of thinking spiritually or thinking biblically, biblically, natural thinking hinders us. Natural thinking limits God from doing what he wants to do. And natural thinking is, is one reason why people don't put a value on church attendance because they think of the church naturally. You know, I might run into somebody in town who hasn't been to church uh, in a while, and I might say, you know, I've missed you. And most of the time, people will say, I know, I know, I I'm, I'm, I'm should have been there, I know I need to be, and I intended to come. And very often, they give excuses. I say, well, this came up, or so-and-so came to town, or this happened, or that. And there's no, there's no end to the excuses. But what it really comes down to, if you wanna know the truth, what it really comes down to is they don't value the assembling together. Because they're, they're, you know, coming to church is a social exercise. It is. That's why Angela started coming to church. When, you, when I got back to fellowship with the Lord, I finally got her to come to church. But the only reason she came was to socialize. And it is very social. We we fellowship with one another and talk to one another about things, you know, and about our week and the things we're interested in. It's a great time of socializing. And, and so that, if you're not careful, you can think of church as a social event. It's it's a uh, because there's so many natural things associated with church. You know, we 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 have to have the air conditioning fixed. And we have somebody has to turn on the lights and somebody has to straighten the chairs and, and teachers have to prepare their classroom and they have to get their supplies and make sure everything is in order. And, and uh, uh, the nursery staff, you know, they've got to take care of the physical needs of children and babies. And, and, and after service, somebody's got to clean up. Somebody has to stay around to turn out the lights. And, and, and just getting ready to, church for, to go to church is a very natural thing. You know you gotta get your sorry self up. You know, shower or or clean up and you've gotta do your hair and you've gotta get dressed and you gotta get the kids dressed and your babies, you gotta cram those little feet that won't straighten up, you know, and curl their toes up, and you gotta straighten their toes up and cram them <laughs> into those shoes and you get so frustrated. <laughs> Are your children are a little older and you got to pull off to the side of the road on the way to the church and threaten to beat them to death to keep them from tearing the back seat of the car up? And by the time you get to church, you could just be so frazzled, you know? It's real easy to think of the church as a natural thing that we do, that we've decided to do. And the word congregation that is so often used Concerning the church is a really terrible word to use for the church because a congregation is just a group of people who've assembled together. You can congregate at a bus stop, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. God's not in it though. We don't just congregate. We're not just a congregation. We are a local ecclesia. We've been called together by God. He yeah. gives us the, the the opportunity to to. Uh, partnership with him and deciding when we're going to answer that call, what times and, and so forth. But every time we come, we don't come because of our own initiative. We come because of a drawing of the Spirit. I challenge you, if you'll stay full of the Spirit, even just partly full of the Spirit, you won't go very many days before you'll, you'll start missing being in church. If, you're, if you'll are if you stay full of the Spirit, like I said, even partially full, you won't go very many days before you'll start sensing, Man, I want to go to church. And when it's church time, even though there are a lot of things that you have to do and you've got to do all that stuff I was describing, there's an excitement on the inside. Ooh, I get to go to church. I mean, you might not voice it that way, but deep down on the inside, there's an anticipation. What, what is that? That's the ecclesia. God calls us. So church is not a natural thing. We do natural things here, but it's not a natural thing. It's a holy thing. Now I said all that to introduce my subject. I want to talk to you tonight about how to dress when you come to church. I'm not talking about spiritually. I'm talking about your physical clothes. Amen. Because people... Think in the natural. Like I said, natural thinking defeats us. Natural thinking, like I said, is what is, is what causes people to not value coming to church. And they say, well, I you was know, going here and I had to do this to do that. Well, what it really comes down to is they see the church as a natural thing and they can take it or leave it. Even though they know they're supposed to be here, they still don't value it as God calling them here. Well, by the same token, natural thinking is what leads people to believe and preach that you can just come to church any way you want to. That's natural thinking. That is not biblical thinking. So many churches today advertise, come as you are. Come as you are. I mean, they make that, that's one of their their outreach slogans. And, it, and, and I realize while I'm talking here tonight, I realize I'm going against the grain. I'm perfectly comfortable doing it. I know I'm going against uh, the prevailing view of the, of the church world today. I know it. It's, it's, not, it's widespread. You know that. There is a dressed down culture that has gotten into the church... And promoted by leaders who are not leading people biblically, they're leading them naturally. And they're trying to appeal to people on a natural basis. The church isn't a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. It's a holy thing. And so people have taught, pastors and, and leaders have told people and advertised, come as you are. There's no difference. You don't have to make any preparation to come to church, come just like you go to the mall, just dress like you go to the mall or to uh, uh, any, any place, school, just however you go, go to, however you go, just come as you are, come as you are, we're all cool with it. Well, if you if you go back and look at the Bible, you'll discover, like I did, that there are not any specific directions about how we are to dress when we come to church you won't find any specific you won't find it specifically and clearly addressed the reason for that is in old testament times and in new testament times people did not have closets full of clothes i i doubt there 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 was even the idea of having multiple changes of clothes. I've read books that have been written about uh, manners and customs in Bible lands. And basically people had two garments on. They had an undergarment called a tunic that usually was from head to toe and sometimes it had arms and sometimes it was like a robe and that was an undergarment. And then they had another coat on top of that. That's what people in, in cold weather, that's what people wore. They wore uh in a heavier one in the winter and not one so heavy in the in the in the summer, but that's what people wore. People didn't have, like I said, closets full of clothes. People had to make their clothes by hand. I don't know, maybe somebody can tell me when the when the first machines came out and that, you know, that that people by hand started uh what am I trying to say? What's the word? Weaving clothes. But it, it was a long time ago. Back in Bible days, they had those those instruments, those tools, and, and clothes were made by hand. People didn't have very good hygiene in the Bible. Deodorant did not exist. Now perfume existed. But deodorant did not exist. In most places, water was not, they did not, nobody had water on tap like we do. So in places where water was, was, was uh, accessible, it was in a river or down by the Sea of Galilee. So they could get water, but they had to carry it to their homes. And you don't waste water when you have to carry it. And so people did not shower. They didn't shower. They didn't take uh, 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 extensive baths like we do. It just wasn't done. It was a waste of water. If we got transported, transported back into biblical times, phew, we would probably be like, oh my heavens. People just didn't, they couldn't have, it's it's not possible that they could have smelled good. It's not possible. The human body stinks very shortly after you wash it. Isn't that right? So uh, people didn't have, uh, they weren't very clean according to our standards. Now they had to wash their hands and, and and wash, you know, when they went into to uh, the presence of the Lord, into the synagogue or in the temple or whatever. They they had some washings and things, but those were those were mostly ceremonial. They still stank, okay. And they didn't have lots of changes of clothes. in In the New Testament, uh, turn over there with me to uh, you're in Matthew. Go back to the eleventh chapter of Matthew. There are only a couple of things in the New Testament about clothes. Matthew chapter eleven, talking about John the Baptist in verse number seven. It says, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out to into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What we would consider nice clothes, people didn't have. They were a very uh, agricultural society. They didn't have the modern conveniences we have. They didn't have access to the water we have. They weren't that clean uh, clothes. They had to make them by hand. The idea of a walk-in closet would be completely They wouldn't even know what that is. People who wore especially nice clothes, 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 especially nice clothes, Jesus said, they're in king's houses. Normal people didn't wear that. Now, now another place where clothing is mentioned is in uh, the book of James. Go over there. James chapter... 2, I think, maybe. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. Now, both of these people are visitors, okay? That's the idea here. These are people that no one knows or they don't normally come into the assembly. He said, if, if people come into your assembly, into your church, a man with, with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, that tells me that those are two extremes in the church, People in fine clothes would be unusual and people in filthy clothes or the way the Greek reads, uh, vile clothes. Actually, the word fine apparel means bright apparel. I like bright apparel. I like bright ties. He says if a man comes in in bright apparel or someone comes in in vile apparel, those were two extremes they didn't expect in church because again, people with bright apparel or fine clothing or soft clothing were very rich people. Jesus said they live in king's houses. So, uh, because like I said, even in Jesus's day and even in the New Testament, people didn't have extensive clothes. Remember that Jesus said, if, you're, if, you, if you have uh, two tunics and your brother doesn't have one, take the one you have and give to him. It was, it was not common for people to have more than, than one or two changes of clothes. And they wore them at work. They wore them in the field. And they washed them. And they, came and, and, and they didn't come dirty to church because that was an extreme. People come in in filthy, vile clothes. That wasn't acceptable. But they, they did their best with what they had. And, and they wore their clothes clean. But like I said, they weren't special clothes. That's, that's all we have in the Bible about, about how people actually dressed. But let me let me set something up for you. Go back to uh, the book of Leviticus. Go back to Leviticus. Go to chapter twenty three. Leviticus twenty three. I'm going the wrong way here. Leviticus twenty three. Now I know you've never been taught because I've never taught on this before that I remember. Leviticus Leviticus 23, in this chapter, uh, Moses speaks to the children of Israel about their feasts and about their Sabbaths. And he starts with, in verse number three, well, verse number two, he says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be Holy convocations, these are, excuse me, these are my feasts. Now, I want you to notice that word, holy convocations. A convocation is a called assembly. That's what a convocation is. This was the, the call hall. This was the ecclesia of the Old Testament. He said, the feast of the Lord's, which you shall proclaim to be Holy convocations. Again, convocation. A convocation is a uh, a calling together. And he said, it's holy. These are my feasts. Then he talks about the first ones. He said, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. Uh, You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So he said during on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, every seventh day, was uh, to be a holy convocation, a holy time where the people came together. They came together on the Sabbath. And he said it's a holy convocation and on that day you're not to do any natural work. Ordinary work, customary work, whatever your job, your business is, don't do it. And he said, You're to absorb, you are to observe this in all your dwellings and even at home. Then he went on to describe the feast, the various feasts of the Lord. These are the feasts of the Lord, verse number four, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month is the twilight of the Lord's Passover, Uh He talks about verse number seven, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. What does that mean? You will assemble together. You're you're being called to assemble. On the first day, you'll have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work therein. The margin of my Bible says no occupational work. See, the Sabbath and the feast were, were days where you separated yourself from your normal activities. And you came into God's presence, and it was a holy convocation. Now, if you read on down, that was the Passover, verses nine through uh, fourteen is the feast of, of first first few fruits. <coughs> same thing is said about <coughs> same thing is said about this uh, festival, and then in verse fifteen, the feast of weeks, which is Pentecost, basically. You shall count for yourself from the day after the Sabbath, from the first day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings, so forth and so on. <clears throat> and uh, see the, word, the, the verse I'm looking for. Yeah, verse number 21, and you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Uh, And that wasn't the verse I was looking for. I don't have any of these marked. And so uh, he talks about the Feast of Trumpets in verse 23 through 25. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. is the verse I'm looking for. I'll find it, just relax. Feast of Tabernacles is over in verse 33. Yeah, that's it. The Feast of Tabernacles. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 34, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of this seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a what? Holy. Holy convocation. What does that mean? A holy gathering. They were being called together. You shall do no customary work on that day. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now notice, it is a sacred assembly. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. The thing I'm pointing out is all of these feasts and Sabbaths were were holy convocations. They were they weren't normal assemblies. They were sacred assemblies. Now we know in the New Testament in the New Testament we don't observe Sabbaths or feast days. Over in uh, Colossians, turn over there with me. Turn to Colossians, uh, maybe chapter two or three. Yeah, chapter two, verse number 16 says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, the margin of my Bible says feast day. That's talking about those feasts that we just read about. He said, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a feast day or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ." The, the literal Greek says the body is of Christ. These, all of these feasts and even the Sabbaths that they met when they met together, they were a shadow of the things that we enjoy today. And it says it was a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. What does that mean? I remember when I was in the fourth grade, my teacher got all of the students together one day and she had a sit sideways with a lamp over here, real bright light. And there was a black piece of paper on the other side. And she put a, she took a piece of chalk and she outlined our profile and, and this light, you know, brilliant light. And she put it real close and put that paper real close. And she, and she drew this, this profile and she didn't put any names on it but she put it up in the classroom and had all, all of us, it was a game and we all guessed you know, who the, who the person was and it was uncanny, how accurate. You could see from that outline exactly who those people were. There was one kid in my class, his name was Mark Willingham and he had this little pug nose and that was the first one pe- people picked out and he had a big forehead and he had a pug nose and all of that came out on that profile and it was it, you could see right away, that's Mark Willingham. And we went down the list, you know, and different people, you could tell who it was by the profile. Well, see, the 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 things of the Old Testament are a shadow of things to come, but the body that's casting that shadow is Christ. Do you see that? The body is of Christ. Well, we don't we don't worship the shadows. We have the body. We have Christ. Why would we want to be consumed with feast days? Now, I know that there are Christian organizations that earn their bed and, 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 and bread and butter, you know, focusing on the feast days of Israel and pointing out how Christ is typified by all of these. And I'm not saying that those aren't good things to know. But when a New Testament ministry focuses on all the feasts of Israel and all the such and such and how Jesus was prefigured. Listen, why in the world would you want to spend all that time talking about the shadow when you have Christ? The New Testament's a revelation of Christ. And all of that was a shadow of things to come. I can't judge other ministries. You know, it's not my business, but it just makes me wonder why that would be valid. To spend all that that much time focusing on the shadow. So today we don't observe the shadows. We're not living in the shadows. We have Christ. But our gathering together is no less a holy convocation than theirs was. Our gathering together is no less a sacred assembly than theirs was. You might argue that it's even a more sacred assembly because we have Christ. We actually come in to church to worship the Lord. I'm talking about when we have an assembly and and, and God, listen, God calls us together. You didn't just come in here tonight on your own. Now you might think you had. You might think you came in here on your own; that God had nothing to do with it. But like I said, if you if you're just a little bit sensitive to the Holy Spirit, just check in your heart. God was drawing you here. He was calling you to come into this place to meet in His presence. It's no less sacred today than it was then. It's no less holy now than it was then. Now we have lots of different kinds of clothes today. And I don't dress the way I I do simply from professionalism. Now you can make one argument about professionalism. I am a professional. But I don't dress the way I do because of professionalism. I dress the way I do because I honor God. It is a way for me... Listen, going to church is not like going to the mall. It isn't. I'm I'm sorry if you think it is. If you think going to church is just like going anywhere else, going to the mall, going to the beach, going to movies, uh, you know, just doing whatever you want to do. If you think church is the same that you just instead of going there, you came to church, you're missing it. Church is not going to church. I'm going to say it again. Going to church is not the same thing as going anywhere else. It is a holy gathering. It is a sacred assembly. And even more so because we have, we're actually in the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit actually indwells us. He actually visits with us. And so we have a lot of different clothes today. Most everybody has all kinds of clothes. We have an abundance. We have nice clothes. These, this is not the, the apparel of rich people that I'm wearing. I'm not rich. But it's, but it's nice. It's not what you find in king's houses, I guarantee you. Amen? But it is, it is something that I put on because when I come to church, I recognize that God has called me. God is calling us together. And so I want to dress in a way that reflects that. Now, I'm not, now listen to me. I'm not saying, men, you have to wear a coat and tie. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, ladies, you have to wear dresses. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we should not be overly casual when we come to church in our dress. Again, I'm not saying that you have to wear a coat and tie. I do because it's my best. And I do it, and and you can can judge me however you want to, but before the Lord, I know what I'm doing. I come to honor God, and I put my best on. I'm not saying that you have to do what I do, but I am saying that it is not proper. It is not proper. It is not uh, suitable to come to church just dressed any old way. It's not suitable to come dressed like you go to the mall, or you go shopping, or you go to the movies. It's not couldn't possibly be now in our culture today we've we've got a dress down culture i get it i get that and yet there are things that we go to there are events that we that we go to where we feel compelled to dress nicer now you can't deny that we were at a wedding yesterday Nobody wore shorts because it's a wedding. It's a festive occasion. You dress accordingly. Uh, I remember a day when you, if you went to, if you were called for jury duty, when you sat in the selection process and they were selecting the jury and they had the jury selected, the last thing the judge told you, now when you come back here tomorrow, men, you have on a shirt and tie, at least used to, they used to make you wear a coat and tie. You dress right, ladies, you dress right. And if you're not dressed right, I'll hold you in contempt of court. Does anybody remember that? All the old people do. (laughs) Now, why was that? It was because the judge was commanding respect for the law. The law is sacred and it still is. There's a lot of people that that are breaking the law today. But I'm telling you, society is built on laws. Laws are fundamental to to society and law is sacred. Law ought to be honored. It demands honor. And that's why the judge used to always tell people, now they don't anymore in all courtrooms. They can just come just about any way you want to. But there was a day, like I said, you'd you'd be held in contempt of court if you came in in blue jeans and a t-shirt. You'd be sent home or you'd be put in jail. There was a day when people went to weddings And they all dressed up. Now, today, people don't dress up as much. People dress casual, but they still don't wear shorts. There was a day when you went to funerals, you dressed up. Not today. People don't necessarily wear coats and ties, and people come real sloppy. But there was a day, why was that? Out of respect for the dead. And there are still events that people go to today, not counting funerals and weddings and courts. There are still things that people go to today where I guarantee you every person in this room, if you went to that, you would dress less casual than you do when you come to church. You dress up a little bit more. Amen. If I was called... To, to appear before the state legislature for any reason, if I was called to just make an appearance, and to you know, I would I would come dressed like this, or at least a sport coat. And most people, you wouldn't find many people dressing really down to go before the legislature or to stand before the governor. Amen. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is you don't ha- I'm not saying you have to dress like I do, but I am saying it's not appropriate to be overly casual. That's all I'm saying. It's not appropriate to be overly casual. There should be something in your attire that reflects I'm going to an, a sacred assembly. I'm going to church. I'm not going to the movies. I'm not going to the grocery store. I'm not going to buy tires for my for my car. I'm going to church. Amen. There are a lot of places today that it would not be appropriate to wear to come to in shorts, flip-flops, a t-shirt, just thrown together. A lot of places that would not be appropriate how much less appropriate is that for church? Now, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not scolding any. But I have a responsibility as a pastor to teach you what the Bible says. And the Bible, the history of the Bible is that God's people, when they gathered together, they considered it a holy convocation. They considered it a sacred assembly. That has not passed away today we don't observe the festivals but when but when we assemble together we're called here by God to come into God's presence we worship the song we sang tonight we worship you tonight for who you are we worship you because you're mighty we worship you because you're worthy we worship you because you're holy amen so uh dress in a way that reflects that whatever that means to you. But I don't believe shorts and so forth reflects a reverence for the Lord. I I, I don't think anybody can make that argument. It just reflects, just come as you are. And uh, I know that there too, there are a lot of people today who expect to go to church dressed any way they are any way they want to i know that there are people today who will come to our church and will be offended because they come in and they're in shorts and a t-shirt or whatever and here we are you know a lot of us dressed nice and like i said i'm not i'm not i'm not suggesting you should dress in suits all that i'm not saying that but you can you you can buy some nicer things I intended I intended to do this service on a Wednesday night, and I was going to have a picture of Dan Jett. He used to come to church in sweat. Uh, in, he used to wear a sweatsuit to church. Am I telling the truth? Sweatpants and a sweatshirt and a hood. And I was going to get a picture. I'm going to say, here's what Dan looked like, and I was going to put the Unabomber. <laughs> Remember the Unabomber from the, from the 90s, 80s, and 90s? He had a he had a he had a, a sweatshirt and a hood and sunglasses. I'm gonna say, oh no, sorry, sorry, that's that's the unibomber. Dan looked like the Unabomber when he came to church. But you know, he 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 figured out it won't hurt to buy a suit, so he buys one a year. I think is that right? No, not even that often. You, you don't have to spend what I spend on suits. People say, well, I can't afford that. Yeah, I'm looking at your shoes. I'm looking at your $200 Nikes, and you're telling me you can't afford a $125 suit. Something's wrong. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying you have to wear suits. I'm just saying that argument's bogus. It's bogus. It's completely bogus. When I was a hippie, when I first started, when I got back in the fellowship of the Lord and I first started coming to church, if you can imagine what I looked like, I had hair down to here. Over my shoulders, you know. I came to church. Here was this old, conservative, you know, Southern Pentecostal church. Uptight church, you know. I came, and I used to go there. My family had been prominent in that church, but I had backslid, and I was just, you know, out of my mind. I started coming back to church. I had, I had my hair over my shoulder, had it parted in the middle, and it was brown back then. I had a, a a leather braided headband. I had uh blue jeans, bell-bottom blue jeans, patched and that it was it was a work of art. The way you patched, you took quilt-type patches, you know, colored patches and you patched your Blue jeans when they wore out instead of you know throwing away you, it was a it was a work of art. I had a friend that when his his baby he, he and i he, his wife and, and Angela and I hung out together right after we had our baby, our first baby they had theirs and when he was at the hospital the night his baby was born, he had on this pair of jeans and i 'm telling you they were patched from here to the i mean everywhere all the way around they were it was nothing but a patch, just quilt patching. And the lady, one of the nurses at the hospital, offered to buy his blue jeans. She said, that's a work of art. Never seen anything like that. What I'm saying is, that's the way I came to church. I had patched blue jeans. I had what I called, they were sandals. They were Roman uh, Indian sandals, you know, Eastern Indian. I called them Galilean gliders. So I had my Galilean gliders on. I had my bell-bottom blue jeans. I had a, a belt, a leather belt with embossed marijuana leaves. <laughs> marijuana leaves embossed all the way around that because I'd been a big pot smoker. I'd been, I, po- I smoked pot every day. And uh, so, I, and that was the belt I had. It had marijuana leaves embossed all the way around it, green marijuana leaves. I had a tie-dyed shirt. Now, not the ones that you buy in the stores today. They're, they're phony. I'm talking about the real stuff. I'm talking about really tie-dyed. And I wore around my neck love beads. I used to make my own love beads. I'd go to Tandy Leather Company, and they sold those little tiny love beads. And I would string my own love beads, and I made little flowers out of them. and all kinds. I, had, I had this stuff on. I had a big old peace sign around my neck. And that thing must have been this big around, big old on a chain. I mean, I had everything but feathers, you know. I mean, I... Somebody said that the 60s was a, was a crazy generation that resulted in an entire generation dressed up like Indians. And that's basically, we had on our tribe, can you imagine me in my tribal garb at church sitting on the front seat, the front row of this Southern Pentecostal church? Everybody walked by went, When the pastor, there was a change of pastor right after I got there, a new pastor came and he met everybody at the back doors. We were all filing out, you know, and, and he was meeting people the first time I walked up to him. He never said a word. He went with his mouth hanging open and just shook my hand and I walked on by. When I started going to church, I know I'm running a little late, but this is funny Everybody likes a funny story. When I when I started going to church, some of the young men or not young men. Some of the older men in the church would take some of us because there was quite a few hippies then coming to church. We all dressed like this, and they would take us aside and good naturedly, you know, I'm gonna come in here next week and I'm gonna have my clippers and we're gonna do something about that hair of yours, you know. We're gonna sh- you know shave you or do all these things, you know. We're gonna fix you up. And they they were about ninety percent joking and about ten percent weren't. You know, there was there was an edge to it. And every now and then, someone would really make an issue out of it. And when they did, I would launch into this long dissertation. And it went something like this. Wow, man. Like, far out. You are freaking me out, man. I mean, how can you be so superficial? It's not about the the threads, man. It's about what's in the heart. Haven't you read that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looked, I was not channeling Samuel so much as I was, uh, Samuel. no, uh, <laughs> what was that guy's name on Doby Gillis? Maynard Krebs. Yeah. Do Anybody remember Maynard G. Krebs? Maynard G. Krebs. Work, work. I was channeling Maynard G. Krebs. Krebs more than I was Samuel, the prophet. But I would get in this long dissertation, God doesn't look on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And I would say, man, you are freaking me out. How can you be so superficial to to care about my clothes, man? Far out. Well, you know, when today, when people come into the church, younger people or whatever, and they want to bow up I don't know why you people dress this way. Why, why would you have on a suit and they don't want to get offended? You know what my response is? My response is far out, man. You are freaking me out, dude. Like, how can you be so superficial? It ain't about the threads, man. It's about what's that's that's really the way I want to respond. I still feel the same way. Only it's in reverse. I have a hard time believing that in this world in this society in which we live where the prevailing view is do your own thing whatever floats your boat whatever makes you happy what just just whatever comes like steve kondo used to say if it feels good do it that's is that not the prevailing view of our culture then how in the world does someone justify coming into a church and getting mad at me the preacher cuz i have on a suit to me, that's that's just ridiculous. Now, does it? Do, are people like that? Yeah, they are. I admit they are, but it's not my problem. They got a problem. I mean, when I was a hippie and I came into church, I just came in like I was. I didn't care. Everybody had suits on; didn't bother me. Why don't people? Why aren't people that open minded today? Now, we were talking about this at lunch one day, the staff, and I said, Now, if I was invited to a dinner, if I was invited, let's say, to a political fundraiser of some kind, you know, a food and fellowship kind of thing for a local candidate, and I showed up dressed down, casual, and I got there, and all the men were in suits and all the ladies were in evening wear, would I feel weird? You bet I would. I'd feel awkward, I'd feel out of place but I would feel out of place because I realized I didn't know what I was getting into. Nobody told me that it was a dress up and I might even think, well, if you thought about it a little bit, you'd have probably figured it out. My, my point is I wouldn't be saying, you people need to dress down. Why are you all dressed? It's their party. Why would I be judging them and saying, I feel uncomfortable, so you ought to change the way you dress. Sweetheart, the world wasn't put here to make us any of us feel good. Amen. So what I'm saying is, I know people will come to our church and turn away because they see people dressed up. Now again, I'm not saying everybody should dress up like I do. Not saying that. I'm saying there is a degree of... Less, God, I'm not talking about being stuffy, coming into God's presence all uptight. I'm not talking about wearing formal wear, or any, you know, formal wear, anything like that. But I'm just saying, don't be overly casual because overly casual reflects a casualness towards God. People that are overly casual when they come to church tend to be overly casual in the things of God in general. So yet yeah, will some people be, offended because I have on a suit and maybe three or four other men you know around here have suits probably but I'm not going to change my the way I dress to honor God when I'm not at I'm not sitting in the mall I'm sitting in church I mean where 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 where? why would people not think that a pastor would look like a pastor in church or that the worship team would be dressed appropriately. Why would people think that's not? If they do, they have a problem. Now the argument is, yeah, but we want to reach those people. Listen, you'll never reach everybody. There's no change. There's not, you cannot make enough changes in anything to meet everybody and, and, and to reach everybody. It just can't be done. So what's appropriate? What I'm saying is church still, our gathering is still just like it was in the children of Israel's time, it is a a holy convocation. It is a sacred assembly. So when you get dressed for church, let that reflect in, in how you dress. Don't be overly casual. Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, I've never taught on this before. I thought I'll just set an example and people will see the example and they'll just learn from example. But because our culture is so... Uh, uh, disrespectful today of every convention, and we live in a society that that disrespects everything that's sacred. This is where people don't have any regard for the church anymore, and so these things creep in. And if you feel like I've singled you out tonight, that wasn't my intention, but it is my job as a pastor to tell you what the Bible says. And the Bible says that God's people get together; it's sacred. It's sacred because who called us together? It's sacred because of the purpose he called us together. Like I said, going to church is not like going anywhere else. It's not like going anywhere anywhere else. And we ought to that ought to reflect in our dress. Amen? Everybody still love me? Amen. Does everybody feel like all the men feel like they have to wear coats and ties and tuxedos now? No. It's not what I'm saying. Am I saying all the ladies have to wear dresses all the time just like because Pastor Angela does and Miss Amy does and a and, and, and few others do? No, we're not saying that. The worship team has a standard because I can impose that on, on our ministry teams. But in the in the church, we're not imposing that kind of standard. But at the same time, don't come look like, don't come looking like you just, you know, meant to go to the flea market and ended up in church. <laughs> Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Does that help anybody? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's stand. Glory to God. Yeah, does anybody have a question? Angela must have a question. Oh, yes. If any, She said, can somebody come talk to me about it? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, of course you can come talk to me about it. Amen. Praise the Lord. I love you. And I want God's best in your life. And I want God to be honored by what we do here. Amen. Amen. That's the the bottom line. I want God to be honored in all that we do. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you, Lord, for visiting with us. We thank you for your presence. Your presence is holy. Your presence is so sacred, Lord. And we're grateful. We're so blessed and honored to to have been called here tonight by you. For a particular purpose. For for a purpose specific to tonight. August the the 21st or whatever it is. You called us here to meet with us. To manifest your glory and and your sweetness. Oh, Father, we honor that tonight. We thank you for it. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in a way that brings honor to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching.